Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Today I want to talk about three resurrections, okay? Um, I promise you this is going to be a little different message than what you're used to hearing on Easter, although I will hit on some of the main themes that we often hear on an Easter Sunday morning. Uh, This morning, I'm going to be talking about mainly a precursor event to Christ's resurrection himself, and I've entitled this Three Resurrections. So we're going to begin today in John chapter 11. Let's pray real quick. John chapter 11. Lord, we ask that during this time you would just um, hold our attention, Lord. May we turn it fully and completely to you. Would you prepare our hearts and minds to receive the word? Lord, I pray that uh, whatever uh, ideas, speculations, opinions that may be um, contrary to your word and the truth of your word, that you would break down those walls and that we would subject ourselves fully to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So John chapter 11, uh, and this is, of course, the story of Lazarus, okay? And I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 to begin with. So let's begin in verse 1. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So it's just kind of giving us a backstory. You remember the story of of, uh, Mary washing the feet of Jesus with her hair. Verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not meant for death, but is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified in it. Now we talked extensively about this a couple weeks ago, that sometimes we deal with sickness and, and, uh, and things like that that we don't always have an answer for, but we found that Scripture teaches very clearly that is almost often, uh, most often because of uh, giving God the glory, giving Christ the glory, and Jesus comes right out and says that so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now it makes a special note several times to tell us that Jesus was close to this family, that he loved them very, very much. So when he heard that he was sick, now listen, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So as you read this uh, passage, you get the feeling that there was a purpose behind Jesus' behavior, behind his decisions. Jesus had a plan to reveal something that would, as he states, bring glory to God and that he himself, the Son of God, would be glorified in it as well. So what we're seeing in Scripture here is the setting up of this final public miracle of Jesus' ministry. Do you understand? This is the capstone. This is the pinnacle of of, uh, His three-and-a-half-year ministry, and this is the final public miracle before His crucifixion and death. That's important to know. This was also a genius strategic move on the part of Jesus, which is not surprising. He's God. Uh, right? So we shouldn't be surprised by that. But again, um, his ministry was drawing to a close. But what was his purpose in this strategy? Why did he not leave immediately to go help his friend Lazarus, who he knew was sick and who he knew was likely going to die? 
What was the purpose? Here's the purpose. In this act, he would undoubtedly prove that he was God, leaving no other possibility than it being an act of God himself raising Lazarus from the dead. In this act, since Bethany, the town of Bethany, was two miles just due east of Jerusalem, thousands of travelers were on their way to Jerusalem that weekend, uh, on their way to Passover, and so they were passing through or by the way of Bethany. And the travelers would hear this story and the news of the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection, and that news would travel fast. It would circulate amongst all the crowds, the entire population that was coming to Jerusalem that weekend. This act would result in Jesus' further popularity among the people, giving him way more influence than the scribes and the Pharisees were comfortable with at that time. You have to understand that they saw Jesus as a threat, that this was not just a dude out in the wilderness, you know, gathering small crowds. There were thousands upon thousands. We know at least in one case there were 5,000 men. So you have to add to that the women and the children. So there was upwards of 15, maybe more, thousand people that were there at that time when Jesus fed the 5,000. It was actually many, many more than that. Okay, so they saw him as a threat. This act would then, because of that, push the religious leaders to do something about Jesus Um, forcing them to take action. And at that point, you read just beyond this miracle, they began to plot the death of, of Jesus right after this miracle takes place. And then finally, in this act, he would give his disciples great faith in in his promises, okay? So right before they watched Jesus die on the cross, they were going to know that, uh, that Jesus said, I too will rise on the third day. They had just seen him raise Lazarus from the dead just several days before. And so this would at least give them some hope, right? Where they believed, well, if he raised Lazarus from the dead, perhaps what he's telling us is actually true, okay? Beginning again in verse 7, let's continue to read. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and yet you're going there again. So remember, they they wanted to kill Jesus then, but he walked through the midst of them like he just kind of, they couldn't lay a hand on him, and he just, it wasn't time, right? It wasn't the appointed time for him to die. Verse 9, Jesus replied, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Let me explain it to you. Jesus' reply here was to assure his disciples that the darkness of night that they feared, which was death or uh, Christ's death, that it could not come yet. All right? The night could not come until the Father himself allowed for Christ and Christ himself turned himself over to the appointed time of his death. Do you understand? So Jesus was talking about the daylight saying, nothing can touch me, nothing can harm me until it's my time to lay my life down. And I am only walking in the steps of what the Father tells me. Okay? So that's what he's saying by this kind of this parable type language right here. Uh, The day of 12 hours represented Jesus' appointed life and ministry. And then the night the disciples feared would come soon. It would come soon. Uh, But as far as Jesus was concerned, it was still broad daylight. So, yes, they just tried to kill me in Judea, but I'm going back there because I've got work to do. Lazarus is sick and we've got to go. uh, We've got to go do this, this mighty miracle. All right. Verse 11. Then he said, and after this, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep 
but I'm going so that I may awaken, awaken him from sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if, if he's fallen asleep, um, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will come out of it, right? So they're, um, they're like taking Jesus very literally at this point, as they often do. And he's like, guys, Lazarus is dead, okay? Like, listen, Lazarus is dead, and I've got to go raise him from the dead. That's what it says in the next verse, okay? Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, and they thought he was speaking about actual sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus died. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. So there was purpose in Jesus' holding back and not going to heal him right away. He was waiting for him to die. And not only was he waiting for him to die, he was waiting for him to die and stay dead for four days. Okay? But he says, I have, for your sakes... I'm glad I wasn't there because you're about to see something that is going to blow your mind so that you'll believe that I am who I say I am. But let's go to him. Verse 16, Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, which just means twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's also go so that we may die with him. So Thomas is like ready and raring to go. Like if Jesus goes and Jesus dies, then we're all going to go die with him, right? Verse 17, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about 15 stadia away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. So then Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. So she was kind of offended by the fact that Jesus hadn't come, right? And Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a very true statement. But don't you find it interesting when people decide to scold the Lord, when they, when they scold Jesus? We've done it too, haven't we? Lord, I don't understand. I'm angry at you. I don't know why you're not healing me. I don't know why you're not healing him. Well, listen, you need to fall on the plan of God and trust him and him alone. It's not for us to decide and it's certainly not for us to scold the Lord, okay? Um, so she's scolding him. Now, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise from the dead. And of course, uh, Martha being a theologian, right? She understood what he was talking about, but she was thinking uh, like her eschatology, the end time. She says, well, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies, verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks her this powerful probing question, do you believe this? Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she left and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard this, she got up quickly and came to him. Verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and were consoling her, when they saw Mary had gotten up quickly and left, they followed her, thinking that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Because look, when they had a death there in those days, there, it was a, it was a week-long ordeal. They, had, they often hired professional mourners to like, hoop and holler and wail loudly in the streets. And, and if you were poor, you, you got the mourners that you got. 
And if people loved you and you were close to them, then they would show up, as many of these folks did, showed up at the house of Mary and Martha to also mourn the passing of Lazarus, okay? And then immediately Mary says, echoes the same thing, because you could tell the sisters had been talking about this. Probably in the quietness of their own home, she says to Jesus, scolding him as well, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, okay? Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, okay? This was the, this feeling of this, this overwhelming emotion that Jesus felt in that moment. Knowing what was about to happen, understanding that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and still in that moment, he was overcome by emotion. He was overcome with this heartbreak of the loss of this, this friend that he loved. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. He wept, even knowing what was about to transpire. Verse 36, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could this man who opened the eyes of the man who was blind not have also kept this man from dying? The third time in this passage here, we see that the people are now questioning Jesus's judgment as if he were unjust because he didn't leave early enough to get there to do it in the way they wanted him to do it. How often do we do this? Instead of just trusting God and His sovereign hand, we try to lecture God or question God about why have you chosen to do things the way you chose to do this. But Jesus always had a plan, and so does God the Father. That's what He prayed when He says, Thy will be done. We submit to the will of the Father. Verse 38, So Jesus again, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it, Jesus said, remove the stone, Martha. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Martha didn't remove the stone, just to make that clear. He said, remove the stone. And then Martha, the sister, the, the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, like he, he's reassuring her, did I not say to you that if you believe that you will see the glory of God? If you just trust me, you're going to see some things that will blow your mind. You're going to see some things that will transform the way you think and it will transform everything about you. You will see the glory of God. So they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you would always hear me, but nevertheless, because of the people standing around, I said it. So he's being an example to everyone around by praying to the Father, okay? And he says... Um, so that they may believe that you sent me. Every miracle that Jesus ever did was to prove he was the Messiah, the Son of God, that he was God in the flesh. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Out came the man who had died, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. That day, that moment, many of them believed on him at that point in time. Verse 46, listen, there are always detractors. There are always unbelieving. There are always connivers. There are always those who are going to rise up in opposition against the plan of God. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. But again, that too was part of God's plan. This was the time in which the Pharisees would begin to plot the death of Jesus. So right after this final public miracle, the religious leaders plotted, as I said, to kill 
Jesus, to do him in by whatever means necessary. Now, this whole passage is riveting, but this morning I want us to focus on what I believe to, to be one of the most powerful statements in Scripture when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then one of the more thought-provoking questions when he asks her, do you believe that this? Because that question is also posed to you and I every day of our lives. Do you believe this? What you believe about God, what you believe about His Word is the most important thing about you as a, as a being it's the most important thing about your existence is what you believe about God. So the main focus of this statement is to demonstrate that Christ Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The whole purpose that John says that he wrote the book of John was so that you might read it and believe that he was Christ the Messiah. It's also Listen, for each and every person in this room, it's absolutely necessary that you believe this while you are still drawing breath, while you are still alive. You must believe Jesus. And, and here's the truth this morning. Like Lazarus, you are going to die. You don't know when. You have no control over that moment as much as you might like to think you do. Uh, though you may take comfort in saying no to fried chicken or, or Ben and Jerry's ice cream or you exercise every day, or whatever the case may be, right? Um, maybe that gives you a measure of quality of life, staying healthy while you're alive, but your days are allotted to you by God. Your days are numbered and allotted to you by God, and it will come as no surprise the very second you take your final breath. In Job 14.5, Job 14.5, it says, A man's days are numbered. You know the number of his months. He cannot live longer than the time you have set. On this glorious Easter morning, the message God's Word presents for us to ponder is this, and I'm sorry if this comes across as a tad morbid, but um, you are going to die, and you are not in control of when, you are not in control of where, and you are certainly not in control of how. So you and I had better be ready for that appointed day, for that day in which you will take your final breath. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Ecclesiastes 8.8, 8, No one has authority over the wind to restrain the wind, nor authority over their day of death. Job 18.14, A man is torn from the security of his tent. So in God's word, our body, this shell, is described as our earthly dwelling place, our earthly tent. And it says, a man is torn from the security of his tent and they march him before the king of terrors. In the context of this passage, the king of terrors is death, that final enemy that will be defeated. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Job 14, 1 and 2, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes out and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. This is God's word. This is what it tells us about our life. It's fleeting. Moses says in Psalm 90, 10, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is only trouble and tragedy, for it quickly passes and we disappear. I think of my grandmother who lived 100 years a month and one day. And I think about her funeral after all that time. And by the time she uh, went to be with Jesus, she had laid... Uh, four of her children in the grave and outlived all of her friends, many of her family, her, all of her brothers and sisters. And the weight of the next life 
far outweighed the weight of the treasure in this life, and she was so ready to go be with Jesus. But, but the, the celebration at the end of her life was wonderful, but at the same time, so few people in the room because she had outlived them all, okay? First uh, Timothy uh, 6, 7 says, For we have brought nothing into this world, so we, can take, we cannot take anything out of it either. So just for a moment, consider this from the perspective of an atheist or an evolutionist or someone who has no belief in God whatsoever. If, in fact... We just die and that's the end of it and we go to the grave and we're just a blob of you know, biological goo in the grave and we turn to dust, right? And there's no afterlife whatsoever, then we would be the biggest fools in the world not to grab everything that we possibly can in this life, live it up, eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow, we die, right? The only problem with that is it is a lie from the pit of hell. And largely that is the philosophy that the world lives by. Listen to me. This is important that you understand this. Every human being that, was, that is born through a mother that comes into this world through their mother, by the way, the only way that they can come, right? Every human being will live forever. Every one of them. According to Scripture, every human being will live forever. Not only will you live forever in spirit, but there will be a much, much more to experience in the eternal reality than maybe you have even imagined. God's word tells us that every human being will have a resurrected body, all right? You say, well, I thought that only those who know Christ and put their trust in Christ have a resurrected body. That's not what God's word teaches. I'm gonna show you. Every human being that's ever lived will receive a resurrected, glorified body. If you know Christ, you will receive a resurrected body for the purposes of eternal bliss in paradise in his presence forever. And... What you may not know is that every lost person will also receive a resurrected, glorified body for the sole purpose of being cast into the eternal lake of fire. That body absorbing the full eternal wrath of a perfectly just, perfectly loving, almighty God. Jesus himself will raise everyone, those who accept him and those who reject him. So turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 25 through 29. Y'all just, just hang with me here. I hope you got enough coffee. I'm going to keep talking a thousand miles an hour, and you take notes. And if you have to, you can go back and listen to it later in the week. But I think you'll really find this study interesting this morning. John 5, 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, the time is coming and even now has arrived when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, specifically, when he's saying this time has arrived, he's talking about when he dies, he descends to the lower parts. The Bible never says he descends to hell. He descends to paradise. If he went to hell that day, he lied to the thief on the cross when he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He descended to paradise to talk to the dead, to preach the gospel to them. And those, see, those folks who had died before his death and his burial and his resurrection, they were still covered by the sacrifices of the Old Testament, but they had not yet been, had their, their sin washed away, so they could not go and be in the presence of the Father. So when the Bible says he descended to the lower parts into paradise, he preached the gospel to the captives. And when they believed, he set them free and they got to go be in the presence of the Father. 
Be, uh, do you understand? That's what Jesus is referencing right here when he says the time has even now arrived when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 26, And just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when, listen, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. All, not just those who have accepted him, all who have died, no matter if their bodies are in the sea, lost at sea, if they were burnt, if they were turned to dust, whatever, however their demise came to be, whatever the condition of their, their shell, their outer shell at that time, it will be reanimated in the power of the resurrection Christ himself. Okay? Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the bad deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So in this passage, Jesus makes it absolutely clear. Death is not the end of anyone. It's not the end of anyone. Everyone will be raised in a resurrected body, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting death. Do we all understand? Can I get an amen? amen. All right, that's just scripture. I'm not making it up as I go along. So when Jesus told Mary, I am the resurrection and the life, he was not being poetic. He was very, being very literal. He's saying, I am the resurrection. I will call each and every person who's ever been born back into their body. I am the resurrection, but I am also the life. And it's so important to understand the life part of it because we don't just want the resurrection. We want the resurrection and the life. Do you understand? So... John 1, 1 through 5, John 1, 1 through 5. This is what we would call the pre-incarnate Christ. So this is, this is Jesus before he was born as a baby. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see him called the angel of the Lord. We see him called the word who was made flesh. Uh, again, the, the pre-incarnate Christ. And here's what it says. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him and apart from him, not one thing that came into being that has come into being. Okay, not one thing that was ever created came into being. And in verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of mankind and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not overtake it. The darkness could not comprehend it. The darkness could not defeat the light. What happens when you light a match in a totally pitch dark room? The darkness does not, does not uh, quench the, the light. The light spreads everywhere and darkness flees. That's what this is talking about. All life springs forth from Him, Jesus Christ. Nothing that has come into existence without His divine hand of creation. Nothing can have life without it coming from the source of life, which is Jesus Christ. He has the power to raise life from the dead and He existed from everlasting to everlasting. Do you understand? He is the great I am. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is life, unstoppable, unquenchable, and the darkness has no hold over the everlasting power of life, which is Christ's very nature. He is life. So what went down in John chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus? didn't even amount to a drop in the bucket of the life that Jesus holds within his nature and his essence. It wasn't even a challenge for him to raise Lazarus from the dead. This was a powerful display of life by the hand of God who took on the form of man. Now remember um, that there was a point in which Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, okay? 
but she had died very, very recently. And then there was this funeral procession of the widow's son. I like to call this the collision of life and death because you had Jesus and the disciples walking down the road one way. You had this funeral procession of the widow and her son who had died coming down the road the other way. And life collided with death and Jesus raised that boy. But he had only been dead a few hours. Okay, He stopped the procession and raised that boy to, to life. I would quickly like to describe the... Um, condition of Lazarus's body after four days, okay? So if you're squeamish, you might want to plug your ears a little bit. I'm not going to get too graphic, but I think it's really important for us to understand. Remember, four days his body had been laying in the tomb, subject to decay, and all of the icky stuff that happens actually happens within the first 72 hours. In Jewish custom, there was no embalming, okay? Not like we have today. They just threw some spices on the body and wrapped them up real good to try to hold off the stink as long as they could, okay? They lived around death. They didn't have this pristine environment that we live in where they got to take showers every day and things were, you know, copacetic and, and they, could, they could put air fresheners around. I mean, they lived in a, in a very stinky world, okay? Um, because the heart stopped beating and nothing from that point receives oxygen in the body, blood drains and pools in the lower parts of the body. Muscles stiffen in what's known as rigor mortis, and that's in the first three hours of death. By 24 hours, all body heat is gone out of the body, at which point the muscles loosen up until 36 or so hours. All stiffness is gone, and the body turns into kind of a mushy-gushy uh, Thing, okay, Bacteria in the body attacks the cells, breaking down the cells, and then the body starts to ooze kind of a, an icky green liquid. Okay, um, The decomposing tissue takes on a zombie-type look and then emits various gases from the body, causing a terrible stench. And this is exactly what we see happening. Ladies and gentlemen, I now introduce to you Lazarus in the form that he was in when Jesus appeared at the tomb to raise him from the dead. Okay, this is what he looked like. This is what he smelled like. Everyone knows in that crowd that he had been dead for four days. There were no tricks being played, no tricks up his sleeve. And Martha tells Jesus in verse 39, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. I love, I have to admit, I like the King James Version better. It just says, he stinketh. Okay, <laughs> so if you've ever grown up with some teenagers, y'all have probably used that term. He stinketh, she stinketh. Okay, John 11 was Jesus' strategic plan to, again, openly show that he had authority over the power of death. And this was Act 1. This was Act 1, the first resurrection. Then came his resurrection, upon which all we hope for and believe, it hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we celebrate today. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19, Paul puts it this way. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul's making the point that if in fact the resurrection never happened, we are the worst losers on the face of the planet, okay? But then he goes on in just a minute to uh, reiterate that, in fact, he has risen from the dead. Jesus had a public ministry constantly confirming that he was indeed the Son of God. He was the anointed Messiah who would pay the price for your personal sin and my personal sin. He died publicly and he was buried publicly 
and he resurrected publicly, appearing to over 500 eyewitnesses after his resurrection until the point that he was uh, he ascended and now sits at the right hand of the Father. Okay, In Luke 24, 1 through 6, we see this passage of Scripture where the women go to the tomb, and uh, in verse 5 it says, And as the women were terrified, there were two men, or angels, they bowed their faces to the ground, and the men said to them, Why are you seeking the living one among the dead? You're looking in the wrong place, right? He's, he's telling them, comforting them, He is not here, He has risen. So he appeared to his disciples on several occasions in the same way. Here's what I love about every time Jesus appeared to his disciples. Every time Jesus appeared to his disciples, they ate together. Can I get an amen? Like Jesus wanted to prove that even after you're died and resurrected and we get our resurrected bodies, that we still get to eat and fellowship with one another. Okay? He showed them the scars, uh, all of that. So first there was the power he displayed at Lazarus' resurrection. Then there was the power he displayed at his own resurrection. Uh, and, and the Bible describes this as a down payment of promise to us. This is really awesome and important for us to understand. Christ's resurrection was like a down payment that you'd make on a car or a house. It was called the first fruits, okay? And, uh, and then, of course, after this, then we have what I call the third resurrection, there's actually a third, a fourth, and a fifth resurrection, but we're going to put all those last three in one bundle that happens at the time of His coming because there's the time of His coming, the rapture. There's the time of His coming, the beginning of His reign. There's the time of His coming, the end of His reign when He makes all things new. And there's a resurrection at each and every one of these. So first, the transformation of the body of Christ when we meet Him in the air in the twinkling of an eye. We shall be changed. That's a promise. Then the resurrection upon His return to reign for a thousand years. Those who were martyred, all those who were faithful in Israel will receive their resurrected bodies as well. Uh, and then the final resurrection unto judgment, as we've already learned, all those who have died and, and, and rejected Christ will be raised up to face Him at the white throne judgment and they will face the, uh, the wrath of Almighty God. Again, a God who is perfectly just. He cannot be wrong. He cannot be unjust. So as much as you wrestle with the idea of people dying apart from Him and spending eternity away from Him, that is your own human emotion, your own inability to understand a sovereign, almighty, transcendent God. You're trying to understand Him in a way you simply can't understand, and therefore you must trust Him. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. The fact is Christ has been raised from the dead. This is Paul circling back around to what he was saying earlier, the first fruits of those who are asleep, okay? And again, the first fruits were, uh, how many of you guys ever garden or grow crops or anything like that? Any, anybody out there do that? Yeah. So sometimes, to me, there were always these, I grew up, spent some time in Olathe, Colorado. They have Olathe sweet corn, much like, you know, like the Bixby corn. And, uh, and there's always these, these, always these uh, stalks that grow taller and faster than all the other stalks, and they ripen faster. Well, the first fruits, kind of along that idea, and in their culture, which is an agricultural culture, agricultural culture, that's hard to say. It's a tongue twister you guys can work on today. Um, they would go out and receive the first fruits first. Let's just picture it as the, the first bundle of grain, right? The first bundle of wheat. And they would bring that and present it as a celebratory thing. This was the first fruits. 
and it was a down payment, a guarantee that the rest of the harvest will come later. So that's what this is talking about when he says that Christ was the first fruits, that his resurrection was the first fruits with a guarantee that one day the resurrection of all his true followers would come. For since by a man death came, this is Adam, and he brought sin to all mankind, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, and that's Jesus, the last Adam. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23, listen, but each in his own order. He clarifies it here. Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. And that coming, that bracket of this period of time in which these different resurrections will unfold. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 55, Behold, I am telling you a, mi- a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable will put on imperishable, and this mortal body will put on immortality. Now listen what it says in verse 54. But when this perishable puts on imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then, it hasn't happened yet, when this happens, then will come about the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That is the time in which death itself will be forever vanquished. And from now on, there will be no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain, and all things will be made new. So Paul gives us a charge to keep our eyes on him as we consider these resurrections and the power of the resurrection. Verse 57, he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And then quickly, 1 John 3, 2. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. So you've got a body, a glorified body ahead of you that we don't even, we can't even imagine what it's going to look like. I can tell you it's going to look a lot different than this right here. Okay, I do my best uh, sometimes. I'm not going to say I'm real committed, all right, because I like that fried chicken and Ben and Jerry's. But it's saying you're going to receive a body that you cannot even imagine, okay? It, it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when He appears, this promise, we will be like Him. We're going to have a body just like His body. The, Jesus appeared and disappeared and walked through walls, and did all kinds of strange things in His resurrected body, you and I are going to be able to do it. It says we will be like Him. We're going to have the same type of body that He has. And everyone who has this hope set on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. By purifying yourself, you submit to the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God. No matter what this life dangles in front of you, all right? Here's the thing, y'all. No matter what this life dangles in front of you, whispering to you that this right here, this is life. This is what life's all about, right? You need the car, you need the money, you need the house, you need the friends, you need the fame, you need the the power, you need the prestige. Whatever this world is whispering in your ear that this is life, you need to understand that that is a lie. 
that there is only one life and it comes from one man and he is the person of Jesus Christ. So turn your eyes this morning to Jesus alone. Turn your eyes upon Jesus only. Do not be so foolish as to seek the living among the worldly trappings of death. Do you understand? Because all this world does from cradle to the grave is lie to you. That's all it does is it lies to you. And there is one truth, one way, one life, and it comes only through Jesus Christ. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And this question, he says, that I ask you this morning, do you believe this? Nobody else can answer this for you. And when you stand before Almighty God, you will not be able to point fingers and say, but she, but he, did, he said this, they did this. You know, I, there will be no excuse. Do you believe this? And if you do believe it, then live your life accordingly. Live your life accordingly in the power of His resurrection. We have this treasure in our hands. He has called us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have to impress anybody with our cleverness, with our talent, with our church growth programs, with how much money we raise. We don't have any, any need to impress anybody. What we have is what Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It is the gospel that we preach without apology. It is the gospel that we point to. Forget all of the schemes and the, and the, and the things that we think are going to help. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms and changes lives. He is risen. He defeated death. And if we truly trust Him and believe Him this morning, we too will live eternally in the light of His love, His mercy, and His grace. And that is what the resurrection means to each and every one of us this morning. And that is good news. Let's live accordingly. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you are encouraged by the truth of God's Word. If you're in the Tulsa area and are looking for a local church family that teaches God's Word, then join us at 1030 every Sunday morning. Or you can join us live online on our Facebook page or YouTube channel. Until next time, brothers and sisters, as Paul instructed, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you.